Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. For those watching live, hello. For those listening to the podcast, also a very excited hello please subscribe and spread the word give us five star go on you know you want to so we live in a time of chaos which i think my hair is a pretty apt metaphor for at the moment and this will only get worse uh what we're talking about today is i think emblematic it's emblematic it's caught a lot it's caught people's imagination there's a lot of fury it's been trending all day uh, all over the weekend on twitter and it is the case of Matt Hancock, who, as you probably know, is our Secretary of State for Health and Car Crash Interviews, who has uh, a High Court judge who has ruled that he acted unlawfully in the transparency of COVID-19 related contracts. This was a case brought by the phenomenal Good Law Project, and we have an absolute superstar with us today to talk about that, uh, and two MP, uh, three MPs, I should say, as well. Before we bring in, and we've got two fantastic guests today, we're very lucky, but before we bring them in, uh, just a bit of housekeeping. Uh, if you are not watching this via YouTube now, please just click on the link. It's so easy. It helps build the show. It's great for us. Just give us give it a little clink. When you're through, press like, press subscribe, and that way you get notifications. For those supporting us through Patreon, to keep this channel going and we've got documentaries coming up including a very exciting one coming up uh, it's patreon.com forward slash owen jones 84 we hugely appreciate your support and to help support the show and put questions to our esteemed guests if you super chats the little money sign below if you put those questions through and also we will give you a very special shout out at the end of the show but look come on we have a very special guest with us and i do not want to wait here waste his valuable time speak take not just speaking truth to power but taking on power and winning which is what we love to see yes we do so without further ado, ado please let a very warm welcome to jolion morn from the good law project jolion hello 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 the man of the hour <laughs> thank you and really really nice to um be with you it's uh, a huge uh, yeah a huge honor i have to say jolion you you're i mean the good law project for those who don't know please look it up and actually support them financially because they do rely on people's support. They're doing all sorts of incredible campaigning work, spanning, taking on the government and winning, and also fighting for trans rights, for example. Uh, so they're an incredible, phenomenal um, um, a campaigning organization. Now, Tony, what I'm going to do, I want to do, I know you've not seen Matt Hancock and Mars. This is, this is going to be good because I want to see your live reaction. I'm, we're now going to put on Matt Hancock being challenged about this. Let's hear what he said on Mark. So you have nothing to apologise for at all, despite losing a case and being legally in breach of the law. Look, people can make up their own view about whether I should have told my team to stop buying PPE and spend the time bringing forward those transparency returns by just over a fortnight, or whether I was right to buy the PPE and get it to the front line. You tell me that that's wrong. You can't. And the reason you can't is because it was the right thing to do. Wait. And all legal cases about timings of transparency returns are completely okay. second order compared to saving lives. And there is no health secretary in history who would have taken the view that they needed to take people off the project of buying PPE in order to ensure that nine months later, the health secretary didn't have a slightly bumpy interview on the MAR programme. CJ, it's got nothing to apologise for. In fact, actually, this was an act of heroism by our health secretary. Well, we do think it's pretty remarkable. We wonder whether there has ever been another um, minister who has been uh, found by the High Court to have broken the law and has responded by saying, um, I did nothing wrong. Um, we are going to write to the High Court, um, drawing this to 
uh, its attention. We do not think it is the right way for a minister to respond um, to a high court finding that, that, that he's broken the law. I mean, a lot of that stuff is quite disingenuous as well, because the notion that the um, dude in the civil service who was um, valiantly trying to get anyone to support his attempts to comply with um, the law requiring transparency within 30 days. Um, the notion that that guy, if he wasn't um, producing uh, the contract award notices, would instead have been buying PPE, is just it's, it's just nonsense. It's not supported by any truth. The notion that um, these were technical breaches somehow. I mean, Hancock focuses um, elsewhere on the fact that uh, certainly by the end of the proceedings, they were 17 days late on average. But um, the contracts uh, that were politically sensitive were held back for months and months and months. So the um, panic buying sort of ended in May. Um, and in February, earlier this month, they were still publishing highly politically sensitive PPE contracts many, many, many months later. So, for example, they published another contract awarded to this uh, jeweler based in Florida, Michael Sager, who did this deal with this odd Spanish businessman called um, Mr. Anderson. Uh, Mr. Anderson was to be paid more than $50 million by um, Mr. Sager, not for supplying PP, but just for sort of acting as a as a go-between or an intermediary. All of the contracts that were politically sensitive, um, all or at least most of them, were held back for many, many months. And the High Court saw evidence that Number 10 asked for those contracts to be delayed publication of those contracts to be delayed until it was more convenient for number 10 to handle the comms in relation to them. So, you know, behind that um, rather blithe assertion that he did nothing wrong in breaking the law is a wealth of rather damning factual detail, it seems to me. So what would you say when people say this is a victory, but a technical victory, what would you say to that? Well, um, that point was put to uh, the barrister acting for Matt Hancock in the High Court by the judge. The judge said, what does the word technical add? And um, Philip Moser QC, um, the very nice um, public law barrister that um, Matt Hancock railroaded into um, uh, conducting this ill-fated defence um, was forced to confess that the word technical added nothing. And the judge really did not like it. I mean, we all hate it, right? Try asking um, a traffic officer who pulls you over for speeding to let you off because your offence was just technical. Um, what it really signals is that this government thinks that the law is something that applies to other people. Um, we got that when Brandon Lewis talked about a specific and a limited breach of law. We got that when Boris Johnson refused to um, send the letter mandated by the Ben Act requesting an extension. He said he'd rather die in a ditch. We also got that when he did nothing after Dominic Cummings' appalling uh, visit to Barnard Castle. What Hancock's um, description of his law-breaking as technical reveals is that this government thinks that the law is something that applies to other people, but not to them. And I think that's completely unacceptable. Now, this I mean, this is the argument being put, or is, is often put, that, well, in an ideal world, transparency would be a wonderful thing. But what matters in a the worst national emergency since World War II is getting the job done, making sure people are protected. And therefore, the end justifies the means. What do you say? Well, it's not an either or, right? They can perfectly well meet their transparency obligations whilst also procuring sufficient PPE. Um, the civil servants in the real world who are buying PPE are different civil servants to the civil servants who are charged with 
publication of contract award notices. And um, this point too was addressed by the judge in his judgment. He said, the problem with ignoring transparency obligations is that um, members of the public ask themselves the question, well, um, if government won't publish, uh, and there is still a lot that government is yet to publish, um, why will they not publish it? What have they got to hide? And the judge says, you know, you might end up reading the uh, reaching the conclusion that there is a very um, bad reason why government won't be transparent. And the bad reason is that um, inherent in parts of this um, procurement process is basic corruption. And um, speaking for myself, I have no doubt that there are cases of um, corruption out-and-out out corruption amongst the £12.5 billion that government has spent on, on PP. I'm a lawyer. I'm a QC. I know what corruption means. It's not a word I use lightly. Um, uh, I think there is corruption in this process. I hope to be able to put the documents in the public domain that will show that. Um, in the meantime, all I can say is that I've seen an awful lot of very suspicious fact patterns, all of which bear the same features. And I think that the government's continued disinclination to come clean about the companies that went through its um, velvet roped um, VIP lane, uh, come clean about who went through, which ministers put them in the VIP lane, uh, because the National Audit Office report identifies that the majority of people who went through the VIP lane were put in by ministers. Um, what uh, contracts, what successful contracts um, were won by those in the VIP lane and what prices were paid to those successful VIP lane bidders. The government's refusal to come clean about any of that stuff, I think, is deeply, deeply troubling. It's not just troubling to me. The head of the National Audit Office, the sort of government spending watchdog, was asked by the Financial Times, can you rule out corruption in the procurement process? And um, Gareth Davies, from memory, I think is his name, said um, there are very serious weaknesses in um, the processes that government has adopted, and I can't rule out corruption. It's striking stuff. I mean, it's also, I have to say, in terms of this idea that they, you know, every sinew has been stretched to get PPE. Uh, I mean, it was reported by last September that the number of NHS staff dying in, in the health service was double that of the previous 10 years. And many of those didn't have access to PPE. I mean, there was this other case which you, you know, you looked at earlier this year. I mean, well, we saw, for example, the, the from Turkey when this was this hoo-ha about this PPE that was coming from Turkey turned out to be unusable. I mean, actually, along the way, the whole procurement in PPE was an absolute travesty, wasn't it? Well, it's been quite extraordinary. So the NAO has released two reports. And in its second report, it identified that we had spent £12.5 billion pounds on PPE. Um, and that PPE we had bought at about 500% of the price that we were paying in the fourth quarter of 2019, i.e. in the last full quarter before the pandemic. Um, so we were paying five times the price and we bought five years of supply at five times the price. So um, I think there are some very serious questions to be asked about how that happened as well. Why did we buy so much at these all-time high prices? I mean, we know um, that some of it uh, is sitting in fields in Suffolk, is in boats coming from China, is stored in China. Indeed, the NAO said the other day that government has bought so much of it that it is now having to appoint investigators to find it all. It's bought so much it doesn't know where it is. And it's not just the staggering quantity at the staggering prices either. Um, substantially, every case we have looked at involving individual suppliers where we've been able to get proper transparency over um, what was actually supplied from these um, sometimes very odd counterparties has revealed that the PPE supplied by those counterparties was duff. So, Iander, we know that Iander 
supplied 155 million pounds of um, unusable face masks. We know that um, Pestfix supplied, I think it's a, between 50 and 60 million pounds of unusable face masks. We know that Sega, the company owned by this Florida jeweler, um, supplied 70 million pounds worth of sterile surgical gowns that can't be used to sterile surgical gowns because they're not wrapped in such a way as preserve their um, sterility. We know that there is um, something odd, although we can't yet get government to tell us what, about the gowns that were supplied by this Northern Irish confectioner, Clandboy Agencies. Uh, government says of them, not that they are being used as gowns, but that they are available for use as part of the PPE suite or something like that. And, you know, every lawyer knows that when you see a formulation like that, it is hiding something. And the thing that is hiding is not a thing that is nice for the hider. So however you look at it, price, quantity, um, quality, the whole thing is a, a real um, a real disaster. Now, this government's into many things, right-wing populism, nativism, demagoguery. The one thing they're not really into is the rule of law. So I suppose my question to you is, aren't they just going to shrug this off? Or do you think there will be a lasting impact on other procurement cases? So Goodall Project has got um, maybe 10 procurement cases. This is the first. Um, on Monday, just gone... We also brought a challenge, uh, which challenge was heard, uh, to Dominic Cummings' decision to award um, a, con a consultancy contract to his friends, his description, not mine, at Public First. And um, he did that under the auspices of Michael Gove. So we're waiting to hear about that case. We've got all of these other cases as well, some of which I've already mentioned. Um, and what the High Court says in the decision out um, on Friday gone, is that um, we are, we the Good Law Project are a good, responsible and um, expert actor in this space. And it says too, that um, we have standing. Um, in other words, we have a sufficient interest to bring that challenge and that's going to help us bring other challenges too. Now, um, transparency really, really matters, I think. And I'm very pleased that the High Court agreed with us. But um, it's not, at least I had thought, the most interesting of all of the cases that we're bringing. And so I have been really surprised by the level of um, public interest. So both Andrew Marm, we've already seen him, and Sophie Ridge really went for um, Matt Hancock in, in their interviews. Um, Sophie Ridge asked um, Hancock whether he would resign. Uh, and, you know, it's been, as you said in your introduction, trending on social media all day. Indeed, it's been trending since Friday. And I think um, what that really signals is that this notion that this government is in it for um, itself and its friends, that it's spending public money improperly to reward um, those who are connected to it, its friends, donors, business associates, is a message that really resonates with, with people. I mean, that's been Good Law Project's experience as well, because um, we've not just had um, enthusiastic coverage in the usual places, um, the sun, um, the Mail uh, have both run um, complementary pieces, as has the Times uh, and the Telegraph. This stuff is resonating right across the spectrum, and it's resonating because people believe that um, bad things are happening, and they care about the misuse of their um, tax um, bills to 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 uh, as they fear, um, enrich um, friends of, of the Conservative Party. And they're right to fear it because, um, you know, the, the New York Times has pointed out that some vast sum of money has gone to associates of 
of the Conservative Party. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In the... This is a political question, I suppose, more than legal, but I'm interested in your thoughts. In the in the uh, Clement Attlee's post-war Labour government, the Chancellor of the Exchequer resigned after he uh, accidentally revealed a couple of lines from his budget speech to a journalist a few minutes before he gave that speech. And I'm not, look, I'm not getting roasted about the past because, like, you know, lots of terrible things happened. I'm not saying there was a perfect political system in the 1940s, but it was striking. The threshold for resignation was quite low for that chance of the Exchequer. What does it tell us that a cabinet minister can be found by a High Court judge to be acted unlawfully and just brazen it out on television and not even consider resigning? It's not even crossed his mind. Well, not only has he not resigned, but I understood him to say to Andrew Marr that he didn't think he'd done anything wrong. And that's that's um, quite a striking response to the finding of a High Court judge that you've broken the law. I mean, I, I think that that really is um, flying a flag for the proposition that the law is not something that you as a minister need to be concerned by. I mean, this troubles me, really, because it's inimical to my conception of what it is to be a public servant. Um, you know, we should be wanting our ministers to hold themselves to a very high standard. We should be wanting them to be thoughtful about um, what they do, to be thoughtful about the criticism um, they receive, certainly to be thoughtful about findings of high court judges that they have broken the law. Um, but we get none of that. You know, instead we get um, complete disinterest um, in the face of extraordinary photos like that in The Guardian this afternoon. There's Matt Hancock um, leaning into his publican friend to whom um, we learned later he awarded um, contracts for the delivery of, of, of vials, glass vials for use in vaccines worth tens and tens of millions of pounds. Um, something odd is happening. Um, they no longer seem to care. Um, that's both bad for public administration, it's bad for the health of the country, and it's a troubling sign, really, about how effective the opposition is, because one of the ways in which a government is kept honest um, is by an opposition that is snapping at its heels in the opinion polls and um, holding it to account not just at the ballot box, but punishing it for its mistakes. And I would be worried, um, I think, if I was the Labour Party, to see that level of disinterest um, on the part of a high-profile government minister to a finding by the High Court that um, he had broken the law. I, I, I don't think that um, sends a signal to the Labour Party that the Labour Party is doing a good enough job. 
And indeed, uh, a question that's just come through from Kyle Balderson. The story is very quickly becoming why Starmer hasn't called for his resignation, uh, showing how inadequate he is, he says. He should be taking scalps over this. I'll put that to Peter as well. I have to say when he joins us, Peter Gagan from Open Democracy. But I'm interested in that and quickly as well as that, because you've got, you know, the government's not going to defeat, defeat itself, Jolyon. Uh, so <laughs> let you go on your way shortly. But are you also worried a bit? I mean, if you've got any thoughts on that, but I'll ask Peter as well. But also a clamp that. I mean, do you think with judicial review, they're going to come for that? They don't like these defeats. They don't like you turning them over like this. That To avoid the humiliation, they'll just change the rules. I think that would be um, a bridge too far for them. Um, I think there are sort of two difficulties that they have. One is that the... Um, uh, acts of union between England and Scotland preserve um, the Scottish legal system as an independent legal system. And if they close down judicial review in England, um, we could very easily move um, up to Scotland and the United Kingdom government um, is domiciled, to use the sort of technical legal expression, throughout the whole of the UK. So it could be sued in um, Scotland as easily as it could be sued in England, and they can't close down the system in Scotland without breaking um, the acts of union at a time when it would be particularly politically provocative um, to rewrite that ancient treaty. The other thing is, um, I think what we're learning from the extent to which these procurement stories are resonating across the political spectrum is that... Um, uh, the population of England, like the population of the uh, entire United Kingdom, has a really firm attachment to ideas of what is right and what is fair. And although the government would much rather have this fight about judicial review on territory where they think they would win, so for example, um, Pretty Patel is always attacking lefty lawyers in the sphere of um, asylum seekers, they worry about what um, those using judicial review to clamp down on um, perceptions of public corruption would say if that ability to deliver the accountability of ministers were shut down. Um, I do think they would see um, or at least see the risk of civil unrest if, if there was to be any real clamp down on judicial review. And just, just finally, I mean, the expansion of the, the use of private contractors within the public domain has massively expanded, not just under conservative governments, but also under Labour as well. Um, I mean, do you think, I mean, the National Audit Office each year looks at the proportion of government budget going to private contractors. It's vast. And we, we know repeated scandals, whether it be uh, uh, the tagging of prisoners by, uh, and it turned out those some prisoners were dead uh, and, and they still got paid for them. Uh, we all remember, of course, the Olympics, private contractors hired to do that. They didn't do their job. The army had to be taken in. I mean, there's lots of examples, high profile examples. But what do you do, does this raise these broader questions? Do you think they'll be answered? Well, um, last weekend, we wrote a letter to government about a £145 million contract awarded to Deloitte. And we think that um, over the course of the pandemic, something like £1.3 billion has been awarded to consultancy firms alone um, by this government. And we think that one of the reasons why so much has been spent is that um, the civil service is so hollowed out that it can't do any of these things itself. Indeed, my own suspicion is that the civil service is so hollowed out that... Um, they're not even able properly to manage their relationships with contractors. Um, anybody who uses um, outsourced consulting firms to help with bits of work will know that managing those relationships so you get value for money from those people um, so that you get what you want, particularly in an environment that is fast changing, as was the case during the pandemic, indeed is the case during the pandemic, requires an awful lot of manpower. You can't bring them in to do the work that you should be doing. You can only really bring them in to do discrete bits of, of add-on. And I think um, our 
public sector is now so small that we can't even efficiently use consultants. So we're spending far more than than we should. Jolyon, thank you so, so much for your insight, your wisdom, but also for your victories uh, in these desperate, depressing times. These victories are like life rafts for people. I think that's one of the big reasons this has resonated, watching this government actually suffer some consequences uh, for its actions is 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 very is very heartening and uh, encourages others and on on just so everyone again for people listening to this or watching this live do support the good law project just look them up um i was very you know i've been proud to donate to support your the brilliant work uh, in support of trans people that the good law project has been doing uh, to defend one of the most marginalized uh, oppressed minorities in the country when they're facing hellfire being rained upon them by most of the media, uh, but also examples like this. It's formidable, and you know you're a you're a um, you're a, you're a powerhouse. So we're very very lucky to have had you on, and uh, keep it up. No pressure, but you're filling a vacuum at the moment. So <laughs> thanks, and um, it's been uh, such 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 a pleasure to 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 finally get to do something together. Really, really absolutely. It's been real honest. Yeah, long too too long too long, but yeah, fantastic. Speak to you soon. But cheers, Joe. Uh, fantastic stuff, and it is heartening, isn't it? We do, uh, we do. <laughs> these victories do have to be treasured in the in these times in which we live. Look to discuss this further because I think this is really, you know, it's a totemic. It's totemic. This it tells us a lot about the government. It tells us a lot about the state. It tells us about the society in which we live in. Uh, and I want to talk about some of these issues further with a really remarkably brilliant uh, investigative journalist, uh, Peter Gagan at Open Democracy. Peter, come on in. Hello, Peter. Hello, Orn. Peter, Hello. do you know what? Okay, I'm not. I'm just going to be honest now. I did have a panic, and I did look up on YouTube to make sure I got this right. I interviewed Peter Oborn uh, a few weeks ago on the channel, and we both quite literally had a protracted conversation about this, which is on my channel, about how to correctly pronounce your last name. Have I, I was very it? impressed, Orn. You didn't ask me beforehand, and you had it absolutely. I, I was going, that's very impressive. Nobody ha nobody has contacted me on your end saying, how do you pronounce your name, and you got it all pat, so I was very impressed. Well, I, che I cheated. I did look at I'm not joking. I typed into YouTube, how do you pronounce Gagan? And it said, Gagan or Gag. It did say, what was the, there's another pronunciation. Is that right? Possibly. There's a lot of different, because it's, it's very Irish, it's got lots, and then once it goes to Britain or America, it gets kind of truncated and anglicised, but no, get, yeah, there's there's lots of different versions of my surname, and sometimes I do, I feel like uh, that Loudon Wainwright uh, lyric about your parents shouldering you with a strange name, but you just got to live with it. It's a great name, but I will stick to Peter just in case. Peter, I just want to put, I, I want to put up a clip, because I do think this itself is... It's not to, you know, have, it was raised by a previous uh, commentator, Carl Balderson, about, about Keir Starmer. And the reason I'm raising this isn't so much to go on about Keir Starmer's leadership, which is a separate issue, but about what this means generally in terms of impunity, politicians. Let's just have a look at the clip. A really simple question for you. Um, Matt Hancock has been found to have acted unlawfully uh, over not publishing yeah. these COVID contracts. Should he resign? I don't want to call for him to resign. Um, I do think he's wrong about the contracts. There's been a lot of problems with the contracts on transparency, on who the contracts have gone to, and there's been a lot of wasted money. And I think that is a real cause for concern. But at the moment, at this stage of the pandemic, I want all government ministers working really hard to get us through this because, you know, whatever political differences, what the public know is this needs to succeed. The vaccine rolled out needs to succeed. And I think in those circumstances, what I'd say to Matt Hancock is you need to you know, go further on the vaccine, go faster on the vaccine. You need to have a roadmap on Monday from the Prime Minister. But I think at this stage, calling for people to resign is not what the public really wants to see. Uh, that was kind news. I mean, really? I don't know, Peter, what do you say? I just think generally, I mean, again, this isn't about, it's just the principle you know, I raised this other example with Jolyon about how a Chancellor Exchequer in the mid-40s uh, resigned because he accidentally released some lines of his speech to a journalist a few minutes before he delivered it. Unlawfully acting, found by a High Court judge, Cabinet Minister. No, I mean, really? What do you think? Well, it is quite striking that no uh, since since Boris Johnson came back into 
into into office in December 2019. I'm struggling to think of any MPs that are any ministers that have resigned or been forced to resign. I know Shazib Javid walked out of uh, number 11, the chancellorship back in, I think it was February of last year, but we've had Prishi Patel admitted bullying, been found to have been bullying. Robert Jenrick, the housing minister, admitted apparent bias in uh, in overturning a planning decision in favour of a conservative donor, Richard Desmond, a, a planning decision to do a, a massive development in um, in East London, saving Desmond an estimated £40 million. We've had Gavin Williamson still in post despite this huge kind of running series of, of problems in, in education. And now we have Matt Hancock been found to have, have, have broken the law and we he is not going to, he, you know, he will stay in post. We can see that. So I do think we, there's a real danger of a culture of impunity going on in government. And I think you know it is incumbent to try and hold government account and to push them because it's quite clear that it's not going to come from within government. You know, Boris Johnson has made really clear that, you know, if someone's, if a minister is behind him, they have Boris Johnson's support unless he doesn't want them in his government, but he's not going to get rid of them because something they've done. I think it's, you know, there a lot of government ministers probably are at that kind of Donald Trump on, uh, on shooting a man on Fifth Avenue stage. You do wonder quite what it would do to get a government minister to resign. Now, you've done phenomenal investigative work on this, on wider issues, uh, which I'll, I'll, I'll talk about and ask specifically about. And people should follow and support Open Democracy. They do absolutely incredible investigative work, which, again, filling a vacuum left by all too much of the rest of the media, I'm afraid to say. Um, but, Peter, I mean, why, you know, a lot of people have got the gist. They saw judge, unlawful, cabinet minister, clearly bad. But why is it, what is it emblematic of? What's the kind of wider significance of this kind of ruling? I think what is interesting about this, if you, you zoom out from the specific ruling, and I think you know, there's aspects of this one judgment you could kind of say, okay, I understand. Look, the government's published contracts late. It might sound technical. It's a pandemic. We can understand that, like, you know, during a pandemic, the government might take longer to do things. But I think, you know, and I would have more sympathy for that critique if it wasn't part, if this wasn't emblematic of a, of a series of much bigger issues around transparency and government. So just to take this one issue of contracts, which is what this case hinged on, you know, the government being late publishing contracts. So contracts are supposed to be published within 30 days. And why is that? It's because you know we deserve, the public deserve to know how their money is being spent. And if if contracts have been published, there's a much there's, there's more transparency. And you know, we this idea of sunlight and disinfectant, that putting things out into the public domain reduces the sense the, the risks of, of bad actors and of bad decisions being made. And it would make okay, look. If it was one or two contracts, but actually what we've seen, and not just during the pandemic, but it's got a lot worse during the pandemic, but it's been par for the course for many years, is contracts routinely published late, uh, routinely published um, with key pieces of information he missing, heavily redacted, you know, really hard to get to understand how public money is being spent. So that's one part of this. But there's a much greater issue around transparency in government. You know, at Open Democracy, we've been running a long uh, campaign around freedom of information, which hopefully some of your viewers might have heard about. We managed to get all these different Fleet Street editors last week to sign an open letter criticising the government's attitude towards freedom of information. Freedom of information, which is a right that everybody in this country should have, has never been harder to exercise. You know, we've the lowest rates since freedom of information legislation was passed 20 years ago and came into force five years later. So we're seeing across government a serious issue of transparency. We're seeing like we're seeing routine documents not being published. Ministerial meetings aren't being published. If you look to find minutes of meetings, there's no minutes kept. So there's a serious problem with transparency. But at the same time, and one of the reasons I think this ruling that matters so much is we've seen genuine like problems and real issues around uh, conspiracy and kind of like about conspiracy with around COVID contracting and uh, conservative don and donors, as, as Jolien pointed out in the last segment. You know what we've seen is. Actually, the National Audit Office, which is the government's own spending watchdog, it found that if you were a conservative donor and you're put in what was called a VIP lane for contracts, you were 10 times more likely to get a government contract. So that's a, there's a real genuine issue with that. And it just so happens that the people most likely to get contracts, you've got contracts worth billions of pounds at this stage, are people who are very, very close to the government and close to governing the government party and senior government figures, which might make sense if they, many of them had a long history of providing the kind of services that they've got these contracts for. But in many cases, they don't. So I think this ruling is emblematic of a much bigger problem. In Malaysia, it's about transparency in government, but also about who benefits from, from decisions taken in government. And I think huge questions about you know, cronyism and clientelism in, in, British, in British politics and British public life. 
I mean, some of the recent investigative work that you and your colleagues have done at Open Democracy, I'll just give people a flavour. Government accused of cronyism after Tory councillor wins £156 million COVID contract. Stroud councillor Steve Deckham, he had a small loss-making firm. Uh, it signed a £156 million deal to import PP from China. Uh, again, last October, revealed failing Serco, in quotes, won another £57 million COVID contract without competition. Uh, it's share price price soaring. Some have done pretty well out of this crisis. Uh, there are there are lots of losers, including lots of people who've died. But there are companies who've done very profitably. Thank you very much. Uh, but yeah, you know, the government was accused of shoveling huge sums of public money to a handful of outsourcing companies without competition, rigor, or accountability. So, do you want to talk a bit about some of this work you've done? This absolutely incredible work, which again, people really should support, and and a bit of these a bit of details and what the commonalities are and what it tells us. Thanks very much for the kind words and the work on well, to be honest with you, like I am, I am not I'm not an expert in contracts. I think I've become I've become a little bit more expert in the last year, but it's not a, it's not an area I'd ever really thought about very more very much before. And all a lot of this work actually started back in kind of April of last year, but kind of a month or so into the pandemic. And as I'm sure some of your viewers remember there was there was a big question about sourcing PPE, sourcing public um, personal protective equipment for frontline workers and for others. And the government, uh, through the Department for Health and Social Care and the Cabinet Office, put out this big call. We want you to come and help us, you know, asking companies to get in touch if they could help deliver PPE. And I spoke to some companies that were desperately trying to do this. They were people who were including manufacturers in England, wanted to talk to the government, wanted to help, wanted to be able to provide PPE. And what was happening to them is they were calling up a dedicated hotline in the cabinet office, been run by the accountancy firm Deloitte. So Deloitte, after the pandemic, when the pandemic hit, the cabinet office set up a, a bespoke unit, not staffed by civil service, by staffed by accountants from Deloitte and consultants. And these people couldn't get through. They were just getting onto this phone line from Deloitte. People were saying, we'll, we'll call you back. No one called them back. They were they want they had expertise and wanted to help. And they couldn't get through into because they weren't kind of favored basically and i wrote that story and i started talking to people in the contract world to try and understand more about what was going on and to ask them about the i actually specifically wanted to know the contract deloitte had got to run this you know how under what spaces and who'd made the decision to push like this very key issue of our pandemic response back you know at the start of this to procure PPE in the hands of an accountancy firm an accountancy firm that not only had done a lot of work for government but had very close links to government you know Chloe Smith the junior minister in the cabinet office before she became a government minister before she became an MP she worked for Deloitte Deloitte and that's not the only one many people uh, in government have, have close links to accountancy firms and there was no contract nothing was published so that started me going well what's going on here why aren't I where am, am I not able to find this out and a lot of the work that I started doing a lot of the contracts I started reporting on came from that so I started looking at what was being published but also started to report on what wasn't being published because often what was happening was a company like Serco or something like that was already starting to do work and but there was no evidence of it because it hadn't been published so you could see Serco doing things but you, you couldn't find out what had happened and what was really striking too is just how much of this was outsourced and outsourced again. It was basically outsourced and subcontracted. So the government decided very early to outsource big aspects of the pandemic response. So Deloitte was involved with trying to procure PPE. Circle was very involved with track and trace, but Circle had no experience with track and trace. So what it then did was subcontracted out out this work. So we reckon about 30 different firms, but it's impossible to find out exactly because Circle wouldn't tell us and Circle aren't um, subject to freedom of information laws. And we FOI'd the Department for Health and Social Care, but they said they didn't know because it was Circo was in charge of it. So what happened then? You know, I ended up writing stories about people who worked in travel agents who are now doing track and trace and hadn't been given much medical training. And we're finding it really difficult, and really genuinely personally stressful as well to try and do this job that was not in any way the job that they've been trained to do. And so I kind of started doing a lot of, you know, a kind of snowball from the early stories. But you, the more you looked, it felt like every rock you lifted up, there was real questions. And it wasn't just questions about transparency, although they were there. There was also questions just about efficacy. Was this working? You know, the track and trace system, which was headed up by Dido Harding, which is, a, you know, she was a, a she is a Tory peer. 
um, unelect, you know, an unelected Tory peer is the nature of it. Um, she'd previously had some really patchy business experience. She'd been head of Talk Talk when they'd had a huge data leak, and she was kind of parachuted in. She was made the, the head of NHS Track and Trace. Um, ironically, her husband John Penrose is Boris Johnson's anti-corruption czar, and so that was the other fascinating thing about the work I found myself doing is that. There's very few, there's not that many kind of the circles, um, kind of the kind of degrees of separation between people are very, very, very small. You're only talking one or two degrees of separation in many instances. Dominic Cummings is someone you've done quite a lot of work on. I, th- I find Dominic Cummings quite interesting. It's kind of a den a totem of the kind of contradictions of right wing populism, which is a kind of stick it to the man, anti elite kind of posture about it. And he obviously sees himself as a kind of evil genius who doesn't play by the rules and uh, and and kind of revels in his notor in his notoriety and um, and he does have this you know you can tell he's kind of like you know he briefs he's not a tory member uh he thinks the tories are too close to the establishment and corporate interests he once declared that when people think tory mps don't care about the nhs and poor people they're right you know he does all this kind of thing to try and show he's an outsider and yet he's quite interesting again because a lot of these contracts, in terms of this very close degree of separation you just mentioned, come back to Dominic Cummings and, to be fair, his erstwhile boss, Michael Gove. Yeah, well, it's a lot of this stuff was run through the cabinet office, which is, is Michael Do- Gove's domain, and, Bar- and Dominic Cummings is very close to him. And we know some of, you know, through Joe Mom's work at the Good Law Project, he's got an ongoing uh, case about uh, through the cabinet office and work given out to a firm called Public First, which is run by James Frayne and Rachel Wolfe, who are two long-standing allies of Dominic Cummings and Michael Gove. And they received, uh, they did work worth over £500,000 um, in the pandemic research work, uh, things like kind of uh, running focus groups and stuff like that. But it was it was un, it was given out without a tender to a company that had done minimal work for, for government before. And some of what's been revealed in court through Joe's work is, is really striking. You have civil servants talking about the fact that these are mates with the government. Um, and that's, you know, speculation and that's why they were given the job. You know, Public First would say they, that wasn't why they were given the job. They were given the job because of their track record. But it's not hard to ask those questions if we know that that's what's going on in government, that civil servants are saying, well, these are mates with our were our bosses. And I think that's a, you know, that's a real problem. We saw that, you know, we had Isaac Levido, who was the man who ran the successful 2019 Conservative General Election campaign. His, uh, af- he, his, his own personal consultancy firm, Fleetwood, was given a nice big contract to do, uh, to do again, to do kind of public re- relations work. Topham Giran, which is another company that worked on the 2019 Conservative general election campaign. They were given three million pounds to develop messages around COVID. Some of those messages weren't didn't really work very well. If you remember, there was a very confused one. Like I can't even remember at this stage the one that came after. If um, the one about controlling the virus, that was them. The quite long window one about controlling the virus. Um, Hanbury Strategy, another company run by Paul Stevenson, a former SPAD. Uh, they got lots, they'd done work on 2019 Conservative General Election Campaign, and then lo and behold, got government contracts to do this kind of work as well post-pandemic. And so that's a real issue. There's a series of companies you can see who've got really good links to government and were given work. And they were given work without tendering process, which I think is a really concerning thing. You know, this was it isn't wasn't through the normal channels because what happened was when the pandemic hit, government departments were able, if they wanted to, to suspend normal tendering. So it meant that lots of lots of firms that had really good relations and had an in with the government suddenly found themselves having lots of um, quite plum government contracts. I mean, what does this tell us about the, the wider issue of, you know, the fact that vast amounts of public expenditure go to private contractors, to the private sector, and this is something which did not begin under the Conservatives. Mm. Uh, it was accelerated under New Labour and obviously came before New Labour under Thatcherism. But it's it's taken place and expanded under successive uh, governments. And also this point which you alluded to, the revolving door, uh, which is where you get civil servants, uh, politicians, uh, people in the public sector uh, who are paid by the taxpayer, uh, and then they obviously establish links, relationships with private organisations, and then um, end up working for them. I mean, there's several ministers. You, you know, Pete, uh, Jeff Hoon was a defence minister, gave a contract to a defence organisation, and uh, ended up working for that organisation, selling helicopters to Saudi Arabia. Um, we've all, all, I'm sure he went into politics for all the right reasons. But I mean, there is, you know, those. T- th- that's what you know. You get this kind of relationship 
which expands under government ministers, which they can end up personally profiting from, but they at least have these close relationships. So what do you think generally about that relationship between the state and the private sector, which has obviously exploded uh, in, in the last generation or so, and the revolving door issue? I think it's a real problem. I think in Britain, there's been a tendency not to see it as a problem. You know, I even think some of the words we use to describe the kind of thing we're talking about, you know, chumocracy, chumopoly, all that sort of stuff, you know, like corruption is a different word and requires proof that someone had done something, you know, done something um, often illegal with, with the inducement of money. But cronyism, I think, is a perfectly reasonable word. Clientelism is a perfectly reasonable word. And I don't I think they are words that we can and should use about it. And I think there's a tendency in Britain not to see this. So just to take, for example, you know, you, you're, you're right. People can get lots of money as consultants, as, as minister, former ministers, former politicians after they leave office. They don't actually have to wait till they leave office. You know, you can still you can still do it when you're in, in government, the revolving door. You know, Sajiv Javid, he resigned as um, he resigned as the chancellor in February. I think it was in August he went to work for one of the big banks. It might, I think it was JP Morgan um, on a very, 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 very lucrative salary. And as are many others, they're you know, the double jobbing. I think this is I think the revolving door is a massive problem because I think it really dents public confidence as well. So there's the one hand is will you know, how firm are you going to be on companies or on a sector that you, they th you think are going to employ you on a very nice little retainer after, on the end, under the other side of your political career? So there's a question about that. And I think that's a real question. Look at Nick Clegg going to work for Facebook. You know, there's a real question about where politicians go to afterwards. But I think there's also a, gen there's a question that we don't ask enough as well about you know, the impact that, that this has, this kind of revolving door has just on, a, on the wider kind of politics and how people feel towards it because if you know that like you know Theresa May for example got you know gets paid hundreds of thousands of pounds to deliver after dinner speeches a single after dinner speech I'm not sure who wants you know 150 grand to listen to Theresa May speak that does feel a little bit steep and so what are people selling at that stage does anyone really believe that speech in itself is worth 150,000 pounds and I think there's you know I think the revolving door is something that we you know there hasn't been anything enough scrutiny on it but also the very mechanics of it we have this thing called ACABA this um the advisory commission on business appointments and it's got a great big title but it has no teeth whatsoever all it can do is say don't do that that's basically it there are very few sanctions for breaking these uh, rules I, I was going to say laws because they're not laws often they're just kind of parliamentary conventions and the problem is it comes from the top Boris Johnson almost more than anybody else has broken these sort of rules you know for example if as a former minister, when, when someone leaves office for two years, they're supposed to tell ACABA, this uh, business committee, what they're going to do if they're going to take up a new appointment. Boris Johnson, three days after he left the foreign secretary's job, signed a £250,000 a year deal with the Daily Telegraph to write a column. He never went near ACABA. ACABA then said, you shouldn't have done that. You're a very naughty boy. That's it. And the problem is when the kind of culture from the top is like this, and I agree, this isn't totally new. This has happened. You know, there's a, there's a tendency, I think, almost to think of some prelapsarian moment in British politics when everything was lovely. And I, I don't subscribe to that. And this is not, you know, in many ways, we've had cash for access scandals dating back decades. But I do think when you have somebody at the top of politics who shows such a lax regard for basic rules and regulations around transparency and pro uh, proper behavior, it makes it even harder and it makes i think it does make the job of people like me journalists who are discovering this information putting it out into the public domain much more difficult too because you are hoping that some of this stuff will stop ultimately it's one of the reasons you do it i mean that that's kind of leads me finally to what i wanted to ask you i mean i i, I think it's fair to say isn't it that one of the reasons this resonates with people is that i'd have one rule for them and one rule for everybody else yeah. i think that really winds people up but also look you spend so much of your life huge amounts of energy time resources into exposing this, do you feel any sense of optimism that it's possible that this this will change? So a book I bought, I brought out a book last year called Democracy for Sale, and it's it is a bit of a, like it's three hundred pages of a lot of this sort of material. And at the end, I kind of say, but I'm very optimistic. Um, and a lot of people afterwards kind of did say to me like, "What are you optimistic about? That book is not very optimistic. It's very interesting, but it's not very optimistic." And I think by nature, I'm quite an optimistic human being, so I do kind of ear towards. And there is things we could do. It's not that difficult. It's one of the things you know. You were talking earlier about labour politics. There's lots of stuff I would love to see labour really get behind, and they've got behind some of it, but go way further with it and make it a big issue. There's, there's lots of things you could do, like to take money out of politics. And I, I do get concerned when I see some of the stories recently about labor funding and labor donors that rather than wanting to take big money out of politics
politics, Labour is actually going, well, how do we try and attract similar donations? And I think the role of big money in politics and the way it warps British politics is really, really underappreciated, under, under, like, kind of under interrogation we don't really ask well when someone's giving lots of money to politics and what are they getting out of it and sometimes it's an you know an ideological position but just so happens if you look at like the most recent um and over the last five ten years or 20 years appointments of the house of lords it's just it's really uncanny quite how many happen to be political donors such such chance similarly with COVID contracting you know it's remarkable how often you went back and you found you went into the weeds of a company and you saw well that's there's a political donor involved in that company well you know again what's the chances not that many people give money to political parties so i think you know if i was being optimistic i would say there are things we could do there's you know the there's lots of legislation that and actually in america they've been good at drafting some of this legislation it hasn't got passed yet maybe it will maybe it won't but to try and start to take money out of politics because if we don't we do i do worry that we're going to end up in a place where you know both trust is gone and we see all politicians the same and the idea of change itself the idea of like kind of political participation is something that will generate change starts to kind of ebb and erode away and that i think is a really dangerous place to be and i think politicians might you know i was really struck you know the kind of grandfather of money in politics of pumping dark money into politics is a guy the Koch brothers he's famous oil magnets and one of them died uh, last year but one of them is still alive and he gave an interview to, to the wall street journal just after donald trump's defeat but when she was claiming a victory in november and he said you know maybe kind of maybe we'd have made we maybe we made a bit, a bit of a mistake pumping all this money into libertarian think tanks and tea party activists and republican causes but the problem is w- once you've done it it's too late you can lose control of it indeed as uh, as, as as one commentator quotes the rogue civil servant uh, who famously tweeted, arrogant and offensive. Can you imagine having to work for these truth twisters? So true of the British government, cabinet and opposition, they add. Also, well, just, uh, just to finish off, just just so you hear this, but more importantly, people listening or watching this, listen to it. Uh, someone says Peter Gagan's book, Democracy for Sale, which you've obviously mentioned, is a proper eye-opener, really frightening. So do do get yourselves a copy. It's a, it's a absolutely must must read. And uh, another comment says, follow Open Democracy and donate if you can. They are blooming amazing, not-for-profit, proper independent investigative journalism. So do do that as well, because the work they do is absolutely critical and they are way ahead, I'm afraid to say, of often far more well-funded media organisations, which perhaps we might suggest choose not to do the sorts of investigative journalism into our government that Peter and his colleagues do. But Peter, that was absolutely phenomenal. So much detail there. Um, it really, really fleshed out why this matters, the wider significance in other similar cases, and I hope mobilizes people to to do something about it. So we really appreciate it. And uh, for those who should definitely follow Peter but are scared of being able to spell his last name, just type in Open Democracy Peter. You'll find him instantly. Uh, and then you'll get his Twitter account and uh, and and be able to read his brilliant investigative work on Open Democracy. But Peter, I really appreciate it. So thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me on. Really enjoyed it. And great beard game, by the way. For those listening to this on the podcast, I get beard envy whenever I talk to anyone with a phenomenal beard, which ranges from you to Michael Sheen. We have a diverse range of bearded men on the show. Uh, but it is a fantastic beard. So congratulations on the beard as well. Thank you very much. I, look, it's I don't do much to make it happen. It just keeps going. I wish if I, I look like I'm going through the violent phase of puberty if I try it. But anyway, cheers, Peter. Take care of yourself. and really appreciate it. And keep up the good work. Take care. Oh, that was great, wasn't it? That was, uh, I think, filled in a lot of blanks for all of us. Why this matters. And, you know, it is corruption. We should use that word, corruption. Uh, And this is a country which often tries to present itself as having moral supremacy over several other countries and governments. And yet just look at this. Look at the absolute state of it. And when a government minister is found to act unlawfully, no consequences, no consequences for his job, no political consequences. He goes on TV and writes it out. But it is absolutely critical we give it the broader context about that relationship between the government and these private contractors. It's absolutely rife. And there are big scandals, big and small, which don't get the coverage that they truly deserve. Uh, and during this calamitous pandemic, when so many people have suffered including over 120,000 of our fellow citizens who have now died, often uh, horrible, lonely deaths, and also 
the many who have been very seriously ill, hospitalized, and also those who've lost relatives, those who've suffered financial and economic and personal hardship. And at the same time, there are people who are profiting. And on what basis are they profiting from your money, your money? Don't forget that. And this is why this matters. It's absolutely critical. And that issue of one rule for them and one rule for everybody else, which doesn't just scar this society, it defines it. And people should be angry and they should do something about it because the danger is this just washes over us. We think to ourselves, oh, of course, that's what they're like. We roll their eyes. We treat it almost like rain on a bank holiday. Depressing, but it always happens. But we shouldn't. And we should organize and we should fight it. Because as soon as they think they can get away with it, it just encourages them to go even further and to do even worse. And where will that end? A government which can already get away with the deaths of 120,000 people and using public money in this way. And yes, Labour, you need to step up. You're the opposition. Stop trying to wait for focus groups of a certain layer of voters who you think are telling you not to play politics. That is a cliche. All voters will say, we don't want people to play politics, but it's not leadership. It's followership. You should take a stand, a moral, a political stand. And that, I think, will get far more respect than people who think you're inauthentically trying to copy what focus groups are trying to tell you. Because if you don't, then all you do is enable a sense amongst the public to take hold that this is just one of these things or it's no big deal. The opposition can make the weather and should make the weather. And that means doing its job as the opposition. If a secretary of state is found to have acted unlawfully, what if that isn't what it takes for them to resign, what the hell does it take? for them to resign. I'm sorry I'm pointing my finger for those who are watching, but it's annoying, it's aggravating, and it's bad for our democracy. And the fact that this government is getting away with all of this is criminal. It's not It's not something we should accept. And we should, it's the government who are responsible for all this, that those opposition, that opposition, are there to fight our corner. That's their job. And they should do it instead of allowing that vacuum to be filled by others. Rant over. Thank you, everybody. I just want to do a little shout out for people who have supported us. Lawrence uh, Coldrick, thank you so much. Nick Gusset, FSM is the dog. Love these names. Flip Flop, Nature to Nature, PGN. Flip Flop, what's with the Boris haircut? Honestly, Flip Flop, as soon as those hairdressers are open, I am there and this is going. It is horrible. It's, it just it feels uncomfortable. I don't know what to do with it. It's not the biggest crisis facing the country, but it is annoying. I'm sorry to inflict it on all of you. Um, it will get worse before it gets better, like so many things. But um, I hope everyone's t- everyone is well. And I just want to finish, actually, by... Because I know I get a bit... It gets a bit depressing and bleak. Um, but I have to say, this weekend, there was beautiful weather, and it made such a difference. Uh, I, hope, I hope... I mean, I know I say this, and lots of you across the country didn't have good weather, but you will. And... It has been a bleak and grim year. And I just thought to myself, the uh, sun on my face, uh, that we're going to get through this. And, you know, my mum got vaccinated on Friday. She got the first dose. So many people around us are getting vaccinated. So many people have died. Two of my own relatives died during this pandemic. And many of you have lost relatives as well. And I suppose the two things we should do for our own mental well-being is know we are going to get through this and mass vaccination, which was not given to private contractors. And don't let the government just take all the responsibility for this after they messed everything up because the NHS, a public body, was left in charge of it instead of the test and trace calamity. It worked and we should be proud of that. But also when things do get better, it gets warmer, it gets sunnier, the days are longer. We will feel that sense of relief. Don't let that mean we let the government off the hook for what they did with the deaths of nearly one in 500 people because of this pandemic and a death rate higher than almost anywhere on earth apart from Belgium and Slovenia. We can't let them get away with it, even as we look forward to better days which are going to come. Thank you so much to our guests, Jolyon and Peter. They're absolutely phenomenal. I learned a huge amount. I hope you did as well. Uh, Also, on patreon.com forward slash ownjoes84 that enables us to do these videos and to do more, to do our documentaries, which take huge amounts of resources by people far more qualified than me. I have no technical abilities, as you, it's probably not a surprise. Um, So patreon.com forward slash ownjoes84, you get a say over the sorts of things we talk about and people requested I do this, the topics we do, the people we speak to, and so on. 
Um, and also uh, on our podcast. Download the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, give us five stars. It just boosts it. More people listen to it. And that is the point. Thank you for listening to me ramble, but more importantly, thank you for listening to our two fantastic guests and do follow and support their work. Really, really appreciate everybody. Really important stuff. I'll be back next Sunday at five o'clock with another really important show. Don't miss it. Even as it gets sunnier, I'm sure many of you will wish to enjoy the warmer climbs. Um, And I hope you're all looking after each other. And thanks for joining me. It's been a real pleasure as ever. Lots of love. See you soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.